Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. David Barnett has been working with small businesses for over 20 years. He has helped them grow, he's helped entrepreneurs buy and sell them, and he's helped people finance them. David is an author of seven books about small business transactions and local investing. He is the host of a YouTube channel with hundreds of videos about buying, selling, financing, and managing SMEs and can be found anytime at his blog site, davidcbarnett.com. David, welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Hey, Corey, thanks for having me on. Well, it's great. So, uh, you know, buying, selling, financing, advising on small business, I guess our listeners have no question about why I'm having you on. It's uh, it's it's right up, right up our alley. But uh, I think you've come from it from a lot of different places. So we're going to get into that. But before we do, I want to take you back to when you were growing up as a little kid, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because, of, you know, a, a business broker, consultant, advisor, um, I doubt it was on the table at that age, but you tell me, maybe I'm wrong. Well, I wanted to be Alex P. Keaton from that TV show. Ah. And so when I was a teenager, I mean, I, I was born in 75. So in the 80s, that's when I was, uh, you know, young and growing up watching that that TV show. I, I remember the character. I forget the name of the show, but Family Ties. Family. It? Yes. And it was okay. all of, and then his character was all about money. And, and yeah, I was yeah. always interested in business. And so I knew uh, in high school in particular that I wanted to grow up to be a businessman of some kind. Right. And I was always getting my hands into childhood businesses, you know, growing up in Canada, that meant, uh, you know, getting into snow removal, of course, and, yeah. uh, you know, lawn maintenance in the summertime and that kind of thing. And so when I finished high school, I went to business school and it took me until about third year before I realized that they weren't turning me into a businessman. What they were trying to turn me into is what I now call a fortune 500 bureaucrat, yeah. which was a big, you know, a middle manager in some kind of big outfit, you know? And we were sitting around doing case studies about whether General Electric should enter some new market with, you know, their whatever product. And I'm thinking to myself, this has nothing to do with any of the businesses I see when I'm driving around. And those were the businesses that I was interested in. And so what we would call today small and medium-sized business or main street business. And so the real good fortune that I had, Corey, was when I was finished up with university, I got my first job as a sales representative with the Yellow Pages. And so okay. my job was to go out and meet with the owners and managers of the exact businesses I was interested in. And I got to talk with those people and ask them some really big questions like, next time the phone rings, who, who do you want it to be? Or what's your ideal customer look like? Or how do you make money in this business? And so this is where I, I got that mile wide inch deep kind of knowledge base sure. about, uh, about business was from going around and talking with all these different people. And, and that was the 90s by that time. And in those days, no matter where in the world you were, if you typed plumber into Google, you would get a plumber in California. And so <laughs> they, they hadn't figured out the local search yet. And so yeah. if you needed any kind of service in any local place, wherever you happen to be, you still reach for that phone book in, the, right. in those days. And so, so that's you know, where I really sunk my teeth into business. And I left... Um, after about seven years, because I could see where the future was going, you know, Google was getting better, the internet was changing, smartphones were coming out, this type of thing. And, and I, I left that to get into uh, business for myself and um, had a, a succession of businesses. Uh, my first one that I sold was with a partner. That was kind of interesting. Then I got into, uh, bi uh, into being a finance broker. And this is where I sort of expanded my knowledge on the aspects of getting financing for business. Um, and then the financial crisis in 08 is what led me to business brokerage because I, I saw 
some of the deals that were put together rather poorly that I was asked to try to get financing for. And I saw that there was a need here in my local market for someone who could be more of a professional business broker. And it, it just kind of lit up all my, all my desires and all my bells in, in my brain, you know, because I was interested in business. I was interested in business deals. I was interested in, in doing things about business. And the idea of meeting all these business people and trying to fit the buyers and sellers together just really was exciting to me. Love it. And there's so much I want to delve into in that because, you know, all that experience has informed what you do now. And there's so many lessons I'm sure you learned from it. Uh, but before we go there, I'm going to take you back on one more thing, which is what was your first deal of any type? But, you know, and, and it could have been something small when you were a kid growing up, or maybe it was your first deal, you know, when you were when you were employed. Uh, but you tell me what, what comes to mind. Well, one, one of the most interesting stories I have of an early deal was when I was in my first year of university. Yeah. Uh, of course, back in those days, more people were smoking cigarettes. Yeah. And so um, I got the idea that it would be really great to put my university's coat of arms onto Zippo lighters <laughs> and that, that this would be a, a, a sought after product. So I, I, I contacted the Zippo company and I sent them the crest and they were about to make them when they came back to me and said, this looks like some sort of trademarked or copywritten <laughs> object. Uh, do you have permission to use this? And of course I didn't. So I had to go and talk with the school administration and they didn't say no. What they said was that I had to properly license the coat of arms. Yeah. And so I had to pay them a royalty based on the cost of the Zippo lighters. And, and so I, was, I had a hundred of them made and I actually sold almost half my inventory to the school's own bookstore. <laughs> and so I paid them a royalty and then I sold them a bunch of lighters and I made a profit on that end. And the rest of them, I sold myself personally, just, you know, in the hallways of the school. But I think that was one of my most fun and creative business deals. I was 18 at the time. So an early licensing deal. I, it, what's fascinating to me is that they didn't have a minimum, uh, you know, license. hundred was the minimum. I, you know. I, I was afraid of, 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 oh, so it was, know. it was a minimum, but it was that little, right. And that's amazing <laughs> that you were able to do that. Uh, yeah. They were pretty nimble. Money the school made on that. Right. You know? Well, I, you know what? I think that my cost uh, was something like, like $14 or something per item. And I think I had to pay the school like 20% of that. So wow. It, wow. yeah. Yeah, if, if I recall correctly, because I was trying to re, I was trying to retail them for twenty five and thirty. So wow, wow, yeah. I love it, I love it. So what was it? You know, before we get into some of the specifics, of, like obviously, I always talk about the mindset of a deal maker, right? One of the things we talk about, you know, sure we talk about structuring deals, nuts and bolts, how you find deals, how you broker deals, how you have value deals. But this mindset of a deal maker thing is always fascinating to me, and obviously, you were you know clearly intrigued right? By deals and by business. You know, what, what had it be so intriguing for you and what drove you to check out all these different aspects, right? Finance, you know, brokering, all that kind of stuff. Like what, what was the motivator for that? Well, what, what I've always found interesting is I, I kind of approach things like a puzzle or a game. And so the question is, what are the rules to this game? And so when you're talking about business, like one of my first businesses was a, a ripoff of a popular franchise. We were removing junk and just, I just kind of copied those guys and yeah. built it on my own. Yeah. And, um, but in, in that world, you know, you're, you're doing your marketing, you're doing your advertising. No one really tells you, you know, outside of, you know, a regulated kind of area, no one really tells you what, where you have to set your price or what the rules are. You just have to try to do it in such a way that you make money. And so it's kind of open to creativity. When I got into financing, I learned that every lender, every bank had a set of rules, and some of them were a little bit different one from the next, which is, right. which is what makes brokering debt possible because you can decide this deal goes to this place or this deal goes to that place based on what their rules are. And so I, I learned how to play within those rules, but I've found that a lot of business owners and a lot of people who want to get into business, the first question they ask is, what are the rules? How do you make the deal happen? How, how does this work? How does that work? And they're not entirely comfortable with the idea that if you're just talking about two business people coming together, neither of them have to agree to participate by any set of rules. Right. It's, it's just whatever they want to do together, you know? And so in that vacuum, a lot of people, I think, have a hard time getting a point of reference because there's nothing to bump up against or no place to land. And so you really get into this world of having to be creative. And as soon as you start to learn about this stuff and 
back when I started to learn, it was hard to get your hands on information. The internet wasn't as full as it is today of this kind of stuff. I mean, you didn't have Amazon and Kindle books and all this sort of thing. Sure. I remember I found this book advertised on a website and it was by a fellow in Arizona or California. And it's on the bookshelf back there. And he was talking about how he was an investor in secondary uh, uh, private market mortgage notes, but also business notes. Yeah. And so when I read that, I was like, wow, there might be some interesting things in there. And so I had to like mail away a check and I got a box with a book that had been made at a Kinko's, you know, like this guy was publishing 20 copies at a time because right. it wasn't any great demand in those days for that kind of specialized knowledge. And so I spent a lot of time hunting for stuff so that I could learn what other people had done to try to create these templates for myself of how things could happen. Um, and a lot of times it, it's kind of interesting. People almost won't believe the stories of the things that, that you create. Yeah. Uh, one, one deal in particular uh, was one of the deals I put together when I was a business broker. I had a buyer and seller and the buyer wanted more money than the business was worth. I don't know if you've ever heard of this before, Corey, yeah, but, like, but the, the, buyer, the, the seller wanted more money than the business was worth. The buyer wanted to pay less, but the seller was in a unique position. He was a gentleman in his 80s and had really made no plan beyond his own business as far as retirement or whatnot. He didn't really yeah, have anything yeah, in the way of savings. Yeah. And so the buyer you know, offered him uh, money that he was going to borrow from the bank and he wanted him to hold a seller's note. And the seller came back saying, well, if you'll let me finance it at a really low interest rate, I'll finance more and I'll, I want a higher price. So it was basically the offer was like 300. The seller came back and said, I'll take 380, but I'll finance 80% of it at 2% over 10 years or something like this. And the buyer said, you know what? Even though I could get it for less, if I get the bank loan, I can't get money at 2%. Right. And, and what the seller did basically is he turned his business into an annuity to, to create a retirement income for himself. Yeah. And, you know, most people would never go into a deal asking for the seller to finance, you know, 70 or 80% of it at 2%. But in this scenario, that's what actually worked for the seller because he was trying to maximize the overall dollars. And, and when the deal was done, I, I asked the seller, I said, how did you feel about the deal? He said, that was awesome. The guy at the bank was only going to give me half a percent interest. Now I got two. And so he was even excited by what you and I might call a low interest rate. That's right. And at the same time, the, the thing that I love about that story is because there's creativity in dealmaking, right? And, and the, the truly good dealmakers, whether they are investment bankers, business brokers, principals, attorneys, et cetera, you know, find creative ways. And they also listen to what the other part, you know, people need, right? I mean, you know, I've, I've got a couple of situations I got to deal going on now where there are definitely, I believe my client's going to get the deal done as a buyer. There are definitely buyers that are offering that are, you know, aggregated firms, right? Private equity backed are offering higher, higher numbers, much higher numbers, but that's all they're offering, right? More money. You know, whereas, whereas my client is offering equity in the, in the firm going forward, the ability to stay on and, and, you know, continue uh, having influence, uh, some protection for the employee group, you know, a bunch of things that some sellers may not value. I mean, if somebody's just out there looking for the top dollar, they're going to go with a buyer that's got the most money. But when you determine that the seller or buyer, whichever side it's on, um, you know, or if it's not even an M&A, any kind of deal, that their objectives are different, you may be able to speak to those. And that's, you know, and that's what you talked about there, right? You can a retirement stream. Well, yeah, and and yeah, you know, one of the one of the things that I highlight for anyone who will listen is that when you're doing a business deal, like if you think about two business people that come together to work on something together, no matter what it is, they're going to work with each other. They're going to collaborate, and eventually something will get written down or whatever it is they've agreed on, right? And for some reason, when people talk about buying or selling a business, a lot of people want to retreat to the idea of how we approach buying and selling a car or a house. And they, they get into this confrontational mindset where it's me versus you kind of, you know, I'm going to offer low, you're going to ask for more. And I've, I've always said that a, a business deal to buy or sell a business has got to still be within a collaborative framework 
which means there has to be a relationship between the buyer and the seller, and they have to be able to talk to each other to understand what each party wants. Um, here where I live, uh, business brokerages practice with one intermediary. We don't have you know buyers having their own broker, that kind of thing. And people would often say, you know, why is that? And I'd say, well, as an intermediary, I need to have access to both parties to talk with them and understand what they're trying to get in order for me to imagine a potential deal that I might try to push each party toward um, that I think will work. It's up to them to agree to it. But if, sure. if I don't know what that other party is, if they're behind another intermediary and I don't have access, then I'm not going to be able to learn. And so how could the other party to the deal learn what they're looking for. I have a client right now um, who's looking at a business in the West of the United States. And it's one of these scenarios where the, the broker is trying to stand in front of the seller and won't let anyone have any high degree of personal contact. And so it's, it's difficult to go on anything other than just what the broker tells you. And of course, the broker's saying, yeah, biggest price, you know, biggest down payment kind of thing. But there could very well, you know, to your point, Corey, be some of those other concerns that are actually important to that seller, but we yeah. can't reveal them if we don't have access. Yeah, and, and that's a fascinating thing because, um, you know, it's funny. And listen, um, people have these comments about lawyers as well, so it's not just business brokers, right? Um, and listen, I, you know, I think in some cases it's it's legit, in some cases it's not, right? On the one hand, you have. I think you're really good advisors, no matter what role they play, whether it's an attorney, whether it's a business broker, whether it's an investment banker, right? They're really going to, um, first of all, have confidence in themselves that they don't need to, you know, like, you know, they're not worried about getting cut out of the deal. They're not worried about whatever. And it's not like you, I'm not saying you give unfettered access to, to the client because sometimes actually part of what the client wants is not to have to deal with that, right? To have you be able to run the deal and, you know, vet things out and do, you know, narrow it down. But there often comes a time in, you know, in a deal where it's appropriate, right? I mean, I've got another deal going on right now where we've been back and forth and it's been through me and an intermediary on the other side. You know, good people, somebody I've dealt with in the past, good guy, whatever. But it's, it's gotten to the point where there are some, you know, there's a handful of important items left. And and I said, listen, let's, let's schedule an all-parties call. Right. And to his credit, he was like, yep, good idea. Right. Because it's at that point where going through intermediaries becomes inefficient and also mm -hmm. where things can be lost in translation. Like there's an efficiency factor that intermediates can provide. And then there's a point at which actually, no, it's less efficient. Right. It's less beneficial. And I think the good intermediaries know that, you know, uh, that line and are willing to, you know, expose folks to their clients when it's, when it's appropriate. Um, I don't I'm it's not really a question in there, but that's been my experience. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Well, you know what? And I agree, uh, you know, in the space that I work in, which which I define as the main street space, sort of a, a sub 500,000 EBITDA level yes. cash flow businesses, there's a lot of owner managed businesses in that space. So a, yes. lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs doing their thing every day. And so I actually, when I'm talking about business brokers, I actually specifically delineate, I use the term qualified business broker. Yeah, yeah, because because there are so many people that get attracted into that space because of the perception of higher commission rates, for example, versus like real estate or something like this, right? Yes. And and people will say, oh, that's those guys. They sell a million dollar business. They're going to get like a hundred thousand dollar paycheck. That I'm going to go do that. And what ends up happening is that person then jumps into it and they spend a year trying to find clients, trying to do a deal. They don't. They end up leaving. And so you have the a vast churn of a lot of players in that business yeah. with very few, you know, that you can come across who are like your 15-year veterans that have helped 100 deals or whatever. And, and those are the ones that you need because they've, they've had a chance to actually ripen into, into having the confidence, wisdom. I like what you pointed out about the fact that a lot of some of this behavior from intermediaries can come from this fear of being cut out somehow and not ending up with their commission. And, and, you know, there's lots of jokes about the term broker, right? You know, why are they called a broker? Right. You know, Corey, I know everyone, everybody knows. We don't have to tell the punchline of that joke. And, you know, <laughs> it's interesting because it's a tough space that you're in, but, but, but on the flip side, it's such a competitive advantage, right? When you're good, because, there is a lot of churn and I've, you know, over 150 some, I don't know, your episode's probably gonna be somewhere around 160, let's call it, 
you know, we've had maybe a couple other um, folks in, in 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 the smaller deal space um, who I know, you know, who do this, and but they're few and far between, and and they are, and it is very geographical, right? Because when you're working in that space, you know, it is often localized businesses, smaller businesses. You got to know the market really well. You got to know, so you know, even the folks I've had on who do stuff in different parts of states, right? They're not going to mess with a deal in your market because they don't know it, right? Um, whereas, you know, if you, if you're dealing with huge, you know, bigger companies, the geography matters a little less. So to find quality folks in there, because listen, let's face it, you know, the, the joke is that, that you know, even with extra zeros, it's still, it could be the same amount of work, right? And you're making less money because there's a zero to less. So it becomes a tough space to, you know, to do well and be successful. And, um, and uh, I find that, um, yeah, some of my smaller clients do struggle in that area. So it's, I always love when I have somebody on like you, because you guys are few and far between in terms of folks that really understand that small and medium-sized localized business space and provide professional support to folks who, in a lot of ways, need it even more, right, than the bigger companies. Because the bigger companies have internal finance people. They might have, you know, head acquisitions. They might have, you know, whatever. Yeah. They, got, they have internal capacity. You know, clients who are doing, you know, uh, who are smaller, they, they often don't have any of that. Right? I, I remember once I was dealing with, uh, it was a deal in the, in the garbage removal space, and um, you know dumpsters and and uh, municipal and county routes, you know, to pick up garbage and things like this. And uh, the acquirer was a regional player, yeah. and they had a VP of acquisition. Yeah. And like that, basically, an internal broker or searcher, like just spent their full time out um, looking for these deals. And so, um, yeah, I, I I I get what you're talking about. The and the other thing too is that you know. I'm sure you know the book uh, E-Myth by Michael Gerber. Of course, love it. Most of the people that I'm dealing with are that on the selling side are those textbook technician people. And the people on the buying side are not necessarily in the entrepreneur category, but they are people who want to own a business who understand that it's risky to start something new. So they go looking for something that they intend to become the full-time operator of. Yeah. Now, what most of these buyers do bring, though, um, you know, which kind of lines them up with what Gerber talks about in that book, is a lot of them are coming from some kind of organizational background where they have maybe middle management skills. And so they're used to uh, standard operations procedures and checklists and systems and that kind of thing, which is usually what that business needs. And, right. and it's not there. And a lot of people look at the business and go, wow, that's a hot mess of crazy going on in there. And then these people look at that and say, I've had to sort that out before in places yeah. where I've worked or, or, or what, or I know the tools to, I, I know the exact, you know, app or software tool that needs to be brought into this solution. And, and they're going to create a lot of value when they step in and, and do that. Yeah. It's a great point because right. So many of those deals are done owner operator to owner operator. But I love the distinction you made because even though it is another owner operator coming in, it's somebody who looks at the business and says, hmm, wow, I could really streamline the you know, the billing system, right? You know, on that or the customer acquisition, you know, system or, you know, how they do internal, you know, job costing or, or, or assignments or whatever, right? Because they, they come from a place where they've done that. And, you know, a lot of times the, in a smaller business with a founder, stuff is just evolved piecemeal, right? Like this, like it's just, you know, I mean, it's, you know, which again makes them potentially unattractive, but also there's the gap, right? That's what the gap yeah. shows where the opportunity is, right? So uh, I love that distinction. Well, and, and, and it's interesting because um, sometimes you can even get a complete different mindset about how the business really should be operated. Um, I, I've got one uh, client, um, and he has acquired several businesses. And so some people might say that he's doing a roll-up, but he understands that the nature of the businesses he's acquiring is that they are very localized, very much about local um, relationships, integration with the workforce, um, local support, et cetera. So he doesn't call it a roll-up. He says he's acquiring an array of, of these and, and he does have a plan at one point to centralize some things, but it's right. not going to be, he's not going to try to run the whole thing out of one central office and rebrand it all with one name because he knows that that's probably not going to go over well in those markets. But what he does get is now he gets to internally benchmark against himself. Right. He gets to compare one to the other. And so even though he's not 
getting the full advantages of that one might think about doing a roll up and centralizing everything. He definitely still does accrue advantages in doing this. And a lot of the times the sellers, they believe that their business has to be an owner operator kind of setup and he's operating over many states. So he's figured out how to run it remotely. And that is a skill that he brought brings to the table from his previous employment where he was in a big company and he had people reporting to him in different countries. And so it's, it's skill set and maybe even an awareness of what is possible. You know, before the lockdowns of 2020, I'll bet you there were a lot of business people that did not believe their business could function unless everyone came together in an office. And then all of a sudden, they were forced to figure it out in just a week or two. And now uh, there's a, a local gentleman I know who owns a business. He sent his staff to work from home during the lockdowns. And then eight months later, he tried to start calling people back. One of them had moved away. Never told him. <laughs> right. Right. And people don't want to go back. You know, it, yeah, it's really fascinating. Right. I mean, that's such a great example where, right, you have somebody who has experience. You know, I'm assuming that that guy you're talking about had put some sort of management. And when I say management, like it's probably a person, right? <laughs> not not a, a like in place in, in the various geographies, which and he knows how to how to do that because he did it at the big company. And it's, you know, and it's fascinating to me because you know, listen, it's, it's, it's what makes those businesses sometimes hard to buy, right? Because they're, they're too, I mean, Gerber talks about it, right? They're too yeah. owner dependent, right? Uh, and things like that. So you got to get by that. And then, and then you got to be able to see the upside. And, uh, and it's one thing for folks who want to buy themselves a job, like maybe the owner had, uh, but then, you know, to be able to see, okay, well, yeah, I can be an owner operator, but I'm going to do it in a different way. You know, that's really, that's really the opportunity, right? Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. What is the difference between businesses in that level? Because listen, there are so many of those kind of businesses where they don't get the enterprise value out of it, right? Mm-hmm. Owner dies with his boots on, so to speak. And, you know, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I know folks like that. And next thing you know, the business is gone, depending on what kind of industry they're in. Maybe they have some hard assets that can be sold off or not. And, you know, and obviously that's much more common in that smaller localized business space, right? Because you have fewer buyers and also just even the mentality of, you know, of understanding enterprise value. So what do you see the difference between the folks that understand that they can create value beyond just their cash flow and the folks that, you know, that just never monetize? Well, I I think that one of the, you know, that line that I mentioned earlier, that $500,000 of EBITDA, that is sort of the line that, and this varies by industry, of course, Corey, as you know, but that's sort of the line where above that line, you can get interest for a business from a private equity group or a a financial type buyer. Below that line, no, because there needs to be enough meat there for them to pay someone to run the business, right? And so there's a huge change in the valuation multiples above and below that line. And so- when people are below that line in the main street space, there is more profit in owning the business because they sell for such low multiples, like literally like 1.7 to 2.7 range. That's right. I can work another year and a half or two years and, and you know, make most of the time when I, right. when I meet with one of these business owners who wants to exit and I show them what their business might likely sell for their exact response is, well, if I just stayed here for another two years, I'd have the same money still in the business. I'm like, yeah. So why do you need to sell? And you notice I use the N word need because no one in that space sells a business to cash out like a Silicon Valley tech entrepreneur might, right? The, the valuation multiples just aren't there. And so I advise people you prepare your business for sale, not just because you want to sell it, but because when it's prepared for sale, it's easier to run and usually becomes more profitable and problems become exposed when you get it ready for sale. And then you run that business as best you can. There are multiple ways to exit. You can sell a business, but if you can spend four months in Florida 
while you join meetings over Zoom every once in a while, well, that is a form of an exit if you're not there every day, right? And so really, if people can get organized, they can run it for a while while they kind of semi-retire. But they're not going to get ever the same multiples as if they had you know, an EBITDA of 750. So there is another flavor of buyer that I occasionally run into. These are the people who are interested in those bigger businesses, but they get priced out by people like the private equity groups or the search funders who've got you know, some backing and are willing to use a high leverage SBA loan or something like this. And so what these people will do is they'll purposefully look for something in the main street space that they think is going to lay the foundation for them to grow either organically or through further add-on acquisitions. Yes. And their whole plan is to buy in at a two X, get it above that, that line I call it the pig peg line. And now they're going to be exiting three, four, five, who knows, right? Depending on on what happens. And so that's a real project in growing value if that is the out on at the outset what the plan is. You know, I deal with a lot of people that work on the 50th floor of a New York building too, that are trying to buy the fishing lodge in Colorado because they want to get out of their career and they want to own a job because they want to have a much more relaxed lifestyle. And that's, that's the other thing too, is, uh, you know, I remember at one point I was in an office with a banker and uh, he was looking at a deal and I was helping a client buy this business. And the banker said, you know, this, this isn't much more than owning a job. Why would anyone ever pay money to, to get a job? And so I picked up his business card and I pointed to the MBA after his name. And I said, I don't know, why would anyone ever pay money in order to be able to get a job? <laughs> You're right. At least my client had, it was acquiring something with an established cash flow. Right, right, right. So, so there is that, you know, uh, sort of thing going on because people in this main street space are not necessarily motivated by numbers. The sellers are motivated by a personal need to get out of the business because something's changed in their life retirement or an illness or something in their family. And then sometimes the buyers are equally motivated again, by these personal things that where they want to get out of that, you know, rat race career job. And they want to get into something that they see as a little more um, relaxing or can give them a better quality of life. I remember a guy, it reminds me of the story. I haven't thought of it in a while. I remember a guy who was a big time trader down on wall street, literally, you know, on wall street. And he made millions of dollars a year, right? Uh, and he was in his early 50s, or even maybe even in the late 40s. And he's like, you know, enough of this. I want to, he grew up in Vermont. He wanted to go back to Vermont. And he he bought um, like a bread and breakfast in, uh, in, I think it was in Stowe. No, it was in, maybe it was in Mount Stowe. One of the towns, I forget where it was. It, it, uh, and it was a phenomenal. Like they had a reputation of having a great restaurant. It was a really beautiful bread and breakfast. Obviously, he had people, you know, sort of run it day to day. Um, but that's what he wanted to do. That was his dream, right? And um, and he's going to leave, you know, making, mil- I'm talking about, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight million dollars a year, depending upon the year. And the firm said, what are you crazy? What do you want? You know, and of course, listen, he was at the point where he didn't need the money. But also, it was just lifestyle. He ended up with the best of both worlds because the firm thought he was so valuable. They said, well, why don't you just, and this is way before, you know, and this is years ago, Right. Uh, I said, why don't, we'll put a satellite dish. Why don't you get a place up there? We'll put a satellite dish on a roof because that's what you needed back then. Yeah. And why don't you continue to trade? He said, okay, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I will trade three mornings a week. That's it, right? So you got a little storefront in, you know, wherever it was in Vermont, right? Was, uh, and uh, they put a satellite dish on the roof and he went in three, four hours a day, three days, three days a week. And the rest of the time he hung around the bed and breakfast and talked to the guests and, you know, skied and whatever. And, and he was, you know, he, now he got the most of both worlds. That's not available to most people, but it reminded me, you know, I met the guy because we stayed there and it was, a, he was an amazing guy, you know? So it's funny. Um, well, but, but you know, what's interesting is that if you ask most people and, and so part of my work is when I meet with a client, I, I usually ask this question I say, well, what do you want? Yeah. And people go, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, right. Well, you know, a year from now, what would your ideal outcome be? What would your life look like? Like, what do you want? And it's amazing to me how few people are able to quickly answer that question, you know, and, and, you know, this, the fellow that you're talking about, the trader at a certain point, he probably realized that what he wanted was not, you know, the millions of dollars every year. 
something else just kind of crept up that hierarchy of desires in his life to, to motivate him to make a change that a lot of people would think maybe was silly, but that's because millions of dollars are up on their hierarchy. You know, they, ha- they haven't been in his shoes yet. That's right. A hundred percent, you know, and it was great. He was, li- he was living the life, man, you know, like he was so happy, you know, I mean, was sitting there having a glass of wine with him. He loved greeting the guests and, you know, just getting, you know, talking to people and hearing people's stories and, and, uh, you know, very unpretentious guy. And, you know, and he was still probably making a million or two a year, right. You know, like just trading part-time, right. You know, but, um, but you never know it. If uh, we just happen to get, like, I don't think he really shared that with people. We just happened to get talking because I had an office down on wall street at the time and I was dealing with a lot of like clients like him. So he knew we were, you know, and, and he told me the story, but you know, with, with most of the folks who would show up there, they would have no idea this guy was making, had made and was still making probably, you know, a million or two, you know, it was just some guy running a bed, you know, a high-end bed and breakfast with a cool restaurant, you know, so it was, uh, it was great. Um, so let's be, uh, I realized that um, we've talked about, you know, you were the business broker side, the valuation side, and maybe people are getting a flavor for it, but um, you and I spoke before we went on air, but let's make really clear to folks exactly what you're doing now, right? What your role is. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and the market you serve, which we sort of generally alluded to as well, but let's, let's let people fully understand it. Yeah, sure. So I was a business broker for three years. And in that time I sold 36 companies for other people. And, uh, on paper, if you looked at the financial statements of that business, you would say, wow, cause I would have 30, 40% growth year over year. And what those statements wouldn't tell you is that every one of those years had a period of eight to 10 months with no closings. And so it's the ultimate in in circus businesses in that it goes up and down with cash flow. And you can have a bunch of money come into your bank account, which you're afraid to spend because you don't know when the next check's arriving. And then you end up into your lines of credit and credit cards at other times a year. And then you're not sure if a deal will close in time and you're going to get in trouble with your banker or whatnot. So for, I don't know if people can, if you, have, if you show any video of this, Corey, I've got gray hair on the sides of my head and it all comes from that period of my life. <laughs> it was just crazy. And so I left, I, I sold the brokerage to one of my associates on a note. That's how motivated I was to get out of there. Yeah, yeah. And I got hired by a bank and I was doing a revolving credit for supply chain financing. So I wasn't doing anything to do with uh, with business buy or sell or small business. I was dealing with larger businesses at the time. And so the, after about a year, my phone just started ringing. It was all these people who had been given my name by other people and they, they wanted help. And I said, look, I don't do it anymore. And eventually I said, you know what? I can help you, but I have a full-time job. I'd have to charge you like some kind of consultant and I can only work off hours. And the guy said, yeah, great. Where do you live? I'll be at your house on Saturday. And that was the that was the beginning of what became this little side consulting gig of helping people buy and sell businesses as a coach slash consultant. And then I, I started writing books and I got onto YouTube back in 2014 and I started to answer people's questions on YouTube and, and make these videos. And the more questions I answered, the more viewers I got. And then I got more questions. Yeah. And then I started to get approached by people from all over who were watching the videos from all over the Anglosphere, you know, English speaking countries and um, and so that's what I do now today. So I, I have a, I took the fact that a lot of people wanted to know about the same stuff. I created a couple of online courses. So I've got one on buying businesses, one on selling businesses, and a, a few others around that, like cash flow forecasting and things of this nature. And I run a group coaching program for people that are working at buying businesses. And my one-on-one clients, they are either people that want to buy or sell one of these main street businesses. And I use a menu. So I've got a menu of, of these are the different things along the way. And here's the things I can help you with. And this is what I charge. And so what it's done for me is it's allowed me to smooth out that cash flow. So I have clients all the time that I'm billing all the time, like a lawyer or an accountant would have, you know, working with different clients. But what it does for the clients is actually kind of amazing because when I was a business broker, I had to charge double digit commissions. Sure. Because I was a, my education, my background, my experience meant that I needed to be a six figure guy, right? And in order for me to do that, I had to charge double digit commissions because I only was able to charge the clients whose businesses I sold. Right. And for everyone you have that sells, there's others that do not. And so what I realized after a while was 
I've got successful business owners who've done everything right to make a desirable, successful business who are actually subsidizing my efforts to try to sell the businesses of their peers who were not as successful. Right, right. And so nowadays, everyone pays. And what it means is that when I'm working with a seller, I can guide them through this process and they're, what they'll end up paying for me, paying to me for my help is far less than what they would have paid me back in my brokerage days. Right. And, and, and the, the, the reason why I love that as well is because um, there is benefit to even a, a potential seller who goes through a process and doesn't sell, right? Because they have to go through the diligence. They have to get their books cleaned up. They have to understand what the gaps are, you know, in terms of even why maybe they didn't get a deal done, which helps them then improve their business going forward. So there's value they get, even if the deal doesn't get closed, whether it's because of market change conditions, whether it's because they have an unrealistic view of their value, whether it's because there are gaps in their company that, you know, so, so they're getting value in the process. So it, you know, in that way, it lends itself to much more of a consultative process and not many people are doing that. Um, and in terms of where your clients are, I mean, I know you've got, you know, uh, a local presence, but you've mentioned deals you, you've done in the U.S. and whatever. So it's not limited to your locality, right? Well, actually, actually uh, between 60 and 70% of my clients are in the States and the balance are, you know, split between, uh, you know, the other English speaking countries pretty evenly, actually, UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. And it, it basically, it, it follows the viewership of my YouTube channel, really. And, and you know, my training when I was studying to become a business broker was all in the States anyway. So it was all through the IBBA. Sure. So very familiar with what goes on down there and, and, um, and work on deals all the time in the States. Uh, most of the people that are in my buying uh, group coaching program as well are in the States. And, you know, so, I mean, I talk with bankers down there and stuff like that all the time too. And um, it's, it's interesting to see the differences between the countries, Corey. Uh, you know, one of the things. What, one of, give, me, give me some of the highlights. Well, no other country has something like the SBA, for example. And so what the SBA does is it changes the way deals are done because they will finance a percentage of the purchase price. In no other country, banks will do this. In other countries, banks will finance percentage of tangible value of assets. And so, you know, in Canada, if you find a profitable business, there will be a good amount of goodwill in the purchase price. Well, yep. no bank's going to lend against that. Wow. And so it actually creates a further requirement for sellers to be more participating in the financing of the deals. Uh, in the States, with the way the SBA is set up, a lot of sellers, if they believe their deal is SBA qualified, it will make them feel like they deserve to get 90, 95% of the money on closing day. And so it, it skews the perception and the result of the additional leverage, if you think back, remember that thing called the subprime mortgage crisis? Do you remember that? <laughs> yep, sure and, and that pro what the, the problem was there is that you made more credit available to more people and higher leverage and prices went up. Same thing happened. So if I look at a, a bowling alley in upstate New York versus a bowling alley in Ontario with the same profit in, in nominal dollar terms, that American bowling alley will sell for far more than the Canadian one. And it's because price. more people can get more leverage and it drives up the prices. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to me how, uh, you know, it's so different. I mean, I remember, you know, as I've traveled the world and which I've had the blessing to do over the last, you know, 30 years, whatever, you know, and, and, and also been a member of entrepreneurs organization. So I know um, uh, owners of businesses around the world through mm -hmm. EO um, and you find out things that you just don't assume, like, for example, in various countries, like the availability of even mortgage money to buy houses is, you know, is not as significant. So people, you know, people are, you know, unable to finance houses that, you know, places where they, you know, so, you know, it's fascinating the things we take for granted in our particular localities in terms of the way the way they work. And, uh, and listen, we all know access to capital. I mean, um, certainly, you know, as is a factor, but I'm looking at now a days and how much capital there's available on bigger deals in the PE and and um, you know venture capital space and just you know and angel investors and across the spectrum, and it always pushes prices up, right? Because 
you know, the more capital is available, the more potential buyers there are and basic supply and demand, the more buyers that are in the game, the more, you know, prices tend to go up. So it's, uh, it's a fascinating, you know, fascinating. Well, and sometimes you can actually get buyers that have uh, these perverse incentives. I know I, I had, um, I had a client that I was working with who was trying to buy a business in San Diego. He eventually got outbid by a, a PE firm um, and remained friends with the broker. Uh, and afterwards was having a conversation with the broker and the, the buyer at the PE firm had said to him how happy they were to have been able to do the deal because they needed to deploy the capital. Yes. Because there was a perception amongst their investors that if they didn't get the money out working somehow, that they were somehow not good stewards of the money. 100%. And so uh, I was thinking like, this is actually pushing certain people to do deals that they maybe even know are not that good, but they want to be able to show that they've done something. No question. And listen, listeners of this podcast know that on various episodes, I've talked about this concept of deals of discipline and how it's easy to lose deal discipline when you have capital that you have to deploy. So 100%, David, 100%. So if people want to find out more about your programs, your your your, your, your group program, your online programs, whatever it is, uh, I know we gave you a URL the beginning, but give it again, or if there's any other URLs or ways to contact you, obviously YouTube channel, um, let people know where they can find you. Yeah. The best place to go is at davidcbarnett.com. It's it's my blog site and I, I post all the articles and videos and stuff that I do there. And there's links, you know, work with David and my courses and books and everything. And anyone who wants to learn more can head over there. There's literally hundreds of hours of content. Uh, I'd love for people to come and, and use and share and read and learn from. And, you know, it's, while I, I love working with clients, obviously that's how I make my living. What really warms my heart is when I get emails from people who say, I watched a bunch of your videos and it helped me not do this dumb deal. And <laughs> I just think, I think that is awesome because you know money is life. You literally put your time and effort into acquiring it and it represents that effort you made. And, and for something to happen that causes you to lose, it really is, it, it's time slipping through your fingers. So that's what I'm all about is helping people to avoid bad deals. I love it. And I love the fact, you know, you said 2014, which was some relatively early in, in, in the YouTube, you know, era, not, not, you know, earlier, but relatively early. And, um, and I love the fact that, you know, this is not, not directly on a deal point, but just as a business point, I mean, you know, I, I, involved with the National Speakers Association as a professional speaker. And so many, this question comes up all the time about, you know, oh, you know, I don't want to give away my content. I don't want to give away my content, right? And, and you know, I, I think anybody who understands the way the world has changed is, no, no, you you should give away content, right? Like it's that, that's the opportunity. And the truth is that if, if you're really good at what you do, that's one, you're, you're benefiting and serving more people, which those of us who really care what we do. I know that's always a big motivator, right? It's not about making a buck on everything we do. But two, it actually does flow back to you because, you know, uh, people, you know, you get to be known as, you know, as an expert, people see you out there, you've given them value, so they're more inclined to want to work with you because they appreciate the value you've given. So I just want to point that out as an example of, of somebody, you know, that uh, aligns with a philosophy that I definitely believe in is that the more you give, the more, you know, the more you get and you want to benefit people. And certainly with online content, you know, like you used to be, I'm a lawyer, right? Used to be people who protect their intellectual property. Everything's got to be protected, right? And I'm sure, sure certain things, I mean, you're not going to let somebody take your online course and and reproduce it and sell it on their own, right? That's appropriate to protect. But but giving away a lot of free content really, really makes sense. Well, you know, if you, if you, there's a lot of diagrams out there that will describe, you know, the sales cycle. And, and there's usually a portion there called rapport building or relationship building where, yeah. You know the 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 client has to become comfortable with you and realize that that you are uh, qualified and all that kind of thing. And what I've noticed is that by being present online and and answering people's questions and sharing information uh, has automated that part of my sales cycle. So I, I don't get calls from people who say I want to get to, I want to meet with you on the phone so I can learn more about how you can help me. Nobody ever asked me that anymore. Right. They know. Um, People just email me and they say, I've been watching your videos all week and this is my project and what is working with you look like? And, and so they, they know that I can help them and, and they know that they want to work with me because they've 
spent some time getting to know me. And, and I, you know, I would say probably this is, you know, one of the motivators behind you hosting a podcast too, right? I mean, you probably see the same thing, right? Yeah, no, no question about it. I mean, I've, I've got similar to you. I mean, one, I have this passion for, you know, to, to let, have folks understand that there are so many different types of deals that they could do, no matter what industry, size, company, whatever, and, and to help them grow their business. And I, that's a pure motivation. And I get, you know, when people say that the content has made a difference for them, it gives me a lot of, a lot of joy, period. And then, yeah, I mean, listen, you know, it, it right gets my name out there. And, and, and as people understand that this is a passion area of mine, it's an experience area of mine, I'm providing them with a lot of value. And, and absolutely, they'll reach out and say, hey, Corey, you know, I've been listening to your stuff. And, now I've got a deal or I want you to help me, you know, come do one of your whiteboarding sessions so we can figure out what types of deals, you know, would be best for us or, you know, so it's the same thing. I mean, hundred percent, hundred percent. David, we can speak forever and I do, and you know, you and I will, will definitely stay in contact and because uh, we have a lot of the same passions, um, but it is a podcast and uh, do need to bring it to the end. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you my final question, which is my highest value in life is freedom. And that applies across the board for me, everything from, you know, I believe people should have freedom from oppression of every type to why I'm an entrepreneur and I haven't had a boss uh, in decades. Uh, what does freedom mean to you and how does it apply to your life and business? Yeah, well, what freedom means to me is the freedom to choose the kind of life that you want to provide, not just for yourself, but for others. So, you know, one of the reasons why I left the bank when I did to make this my full-time thing uh, I'm a single dad. And at the time my kids were in school until 1.30 in the afternoon. And I needed something that I could see that I could produce that full-time income between 8.30 and 1.30 every day yeah. so that I didn't have to send the kids to daycare. And so <clears throat> I don't think I'd be able to find a job like that. And so, you know, this is what business gave to me, the opportunity to provide my kids with the childhood I wanted to give them. Yeah. So it's different now. They're a little bit older they come home and make their own snacks and they just want to watch TV and play video games. <laughs> but for many years, it was totally worth it. And today, of course, I still get to enjoy the benefits of, of being able to control my time. Yeah. And to me, that's, you know, that's freedom. That's, that's why I would rather do this than, than be working at the bank, for example. Love it. David Barnett, thanks for being a great guest on the Deal Quest podcast. Thanks for having me, Corey. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.